we're going to be talking about the adoption and impact of digital tools in genetic counseling. So we're going to start with a 45-minute panel discussion with our lovely panelists here. And then we're going to be answering your questions at the end of the webinar. So a little bit about our sponsor of the series, Phenotips. They're the world's first genomic health record system, and they've designed software and services that bring workflow to genetic professionals like us. So they've developed tools like pedigree builders, standardized symptom capture, and diagnostic insights. As many of us know, electronic health records are not designed specifically for genetics. So Phenotips saw the need for this and fills in those gaps by really designing a complete suite for genomic medicine. So in light of the pandemic, Phenotips is sponsoring this speaker series so that we can all learn from home and we're all learning from around the globe during the series. So it's very exciting to be connecting with all of you. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Kira Deneen, the host for this webinar. I'm also the host of the podcast, DNA Today. We are very excited that we recently won the People's Choice Award for the best 2020 science and medicine podcast. So we've been making podcasts for the last eight years. We've got over 130 episodes of conversations like the ones we have today, all about genetics. Um, and Scott Weissman was on an episode about four years ago. So there's certainly a lot of familiar faces that have been on the show. Um, and I'm also a prenatal genetic counselor um, during the day. So. As I mentioned, today's webinar topic is going to be talking about digital tools for genetic counselors. As genetic counselors, the four of us are very busy and we're relying more and more on digital tools to be efficient, prevent burnout. And so we're gonna be talking about all of the advantages to using digital tools, but also talking about the barriers that we face in adopting these tools, either as genetic departments or genetic counselors ourselves. So exciting topics that we're diving into with these three experts today. I'd love to hear from each of you just to introduce yourselves to the audience. Uh, Andrew, if you'd like to start, that would be great. Sure. So my name is uh, Andy McCarty. I'm a laboratory genetic counselor at Perkin Elmer Genomics and manager of genomic client services. Um, in my limited free time, I'm also founder and operator of Clover Genetics, um, which is a telehealth private practice that focuses on improving access to genetic information and services in underserved areas. Um, I have uh, varied interests, but certainly interest in neurogenetics, immune genetics, uh, anything to do with telehealth, um, and really using technology to improve access to genetic information and genetic services. Fantastic. Scott, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Scott Weissman. I am a genetic counselor by training. Uh, I've been mostly working in the adult space for my 20 years with um, really a focus on, on cancer genetics. I'm currently the lead of cancer services at Genome Medical. And like, uh, like Andy, in my limited free time, I also have a private practice uh, in the Chicago area called Chicago Genetic Consultants, where um, I'm seeing individuals who have done their own genetic testing, uh, looking for help with interpretation for direct-to-consumer testing or consumer-directed testing, um, and have been doing that for about four years. So thank you for the invite today. Yeah, fantastic to have us. Um, so Amy, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Amy Taylor. I'm lead consultant genetic counsellor at um, Cambridge University Hospitals um, in the UK. Um, we are the genetic service that cover the east of England, and I lead a team of 14 genetic counsellors and trainees. Um, so I've been a genetic counsellor for 11 years. I've been registered with the UK Genetic Counsellor Registration Board since 2011. Um, and prior to training as a genetic counsellor, I did a PhD, which was in the genetics of deafness. Um, so that was one of my interests, but my, my sort of clinical interests now are more cancer genetics, cardiac genetics, and I'm also um, the genetic counsellor for our specialist NF2 clinic. So we have lots of expertise covered throughout lots of areas of genetic counseling. And what really brings you all together is your interest in digital tools. So I would love to hear how each of you utilize digital tools in your practice as kind of an overview so that people are more familiar with how you're using digital tools. Um, Scott, would you like to start out on this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, with Genome Medical, we are a telegenomics practice that is, is nationwide. And so we have a large volume of patients coming in. In order to really work with all those patients, we have to be efficient at the services that we provide. So we really kind of thought about using digital tools in two ways. So one is by um, doing pedigrees digitally. 
So having patients maybe fill out a, a family history questionnaire that auto generates a pedigree. Um, a lot of the tools that are on the market offer that kind of um, uh, uh, service, if you will. And then some of these tools also allow you to run risk models for your cancer patients. So instead of having to kind of pull out of a model, go into a new one, re-enter all the information, you can really do it all in, in one setting, which is definitely time efficient. And then the other digital tool that we are in the process of developing is really more of a um, choose your own adventure type of genetic counseling where we're providing video education to the patients that would take them through the education process about you know, genetics, cancer, genetic testing with a series of videos that they can kind of pick and choose which ones that they want to watch. And then as they're going through those videos, answering questions about their personal and family history, that's really allowing that to generate uh, a pedigree where when then the patient actually gets to the genetic counselor, the patient's been educated, we have a pedigree drawn, um, and then we're really maybe spending um, less time with the patients, but that time that we're spending is really more focused on really facilitating decision-making about genetic testing and really allowing us to do psychosocial assessments of the patient's needs. So it's really taking maybe the, you know, 45 to 60 minute process and perhaps getting it down to maybe, you know, 20 minutes face-to-face -face with the patient to allow more scalability and see more patients. So it allows the patients to start understanding and conceptualizing these topics so that when they are face-to-face -face or telehealth meeting with a genetic counselor, that they've already processed some of this information and you're not spending as much time on that more basic information and you're spending the conversation focused on their particular questions and uh, speeding that along a little bit. Exactly, exactly. And there's a lot of centers around the country that have really looked at this type of model, providing video education upfront. And it, it really is effective. Patients retain the knowledge the same way that they do with the genetic counselor. Um, but again, it really, like you said, it allows them to come to the session with very targeted and specific questions and concerns that you can really then spend the time practicing at top of scope as a genetic counselor. Yeah, fantastic to hear of like that's the insight and and how it's been working for Genomedical. Um, and so Amy, what has your experience been so far of using digital tools and how that's helped kind of your day to day practice? So our hospital went fully digital in 2014, um, October 2014, actually. So we've just passed our six year anniversary. Um, the pain, the transition was fairly painful, but actually it's completely paid off, particularly now, um, because you can just access everything from everywhere. Um, working from home, we can see all of our patients' records. So we, uh, that's when we adopted Feeder Tips, and we did it because um, the hospital was adopting Epic as our electronic medical record. But an, an EPIC are developing some um, genetic specific tools, but at, at the time in 2014, that was not really an option. So we needed a way to store not just our patients' medical information, but, our, but family medical information. And it's, we previously had family specific files where we'd be storing information about multiple family members, including people who um, we hadn't seen, but who we'd gathered, you know, past reports and so on, on um, genetic test reports from other centers. It's not appropriate for us to put those on the patient's medical record, partly because it causes confusion. Somebody who doesn't look carefully might think that a genetic test report on a relative is actually for the patient, partly because actually that's the patient's confidential medical record um, and they can request access to it at any time. So really everything on that record needs to be specific to the patient. So instead, we've adopted phenotypes as our family um, information source. So it's where we store um, all the family history forms that currently our patients send back, um, pathology reports, genetic test reports on other relatives, and those are accessible anywhere. So I can be logged in and accessing those things at the same time as somebody else. We don't have to pass bits of paper around. Um, and the, the other sort of more basic thing that we're, that we're doing, particularly at the moment, is um, video calling. So we're, we're, we're doing a lot more um, telemedicine. Um, with we started off doing telephone clinics, we're now doing some video clinics. And I find that um, sharing the screen with a patient is a real boon in that because so I can show them the pedigree as I'm drawing it, it makes it more of a shared space with the patient. Um, but other things as well, visual aids, which I, I, I was not able to use over the phone, I'm able to use when I when I do video calls. Yeah, so there's certainly so many aspects I feel like that you hit on. And one of them 
most notably being that you can access this information from home. So during this pandemic, so many people are working now from home and doing the telehealth consulting and just the fact that you're able to do that, but also that patients can access their own information, which is not going to be the case when you have, um, you know, things like Cerner Epic, where you have such a huge, large database that it's not as um, tailorable to certain practices. So interesting to see how that's kind of happened for you, especially the last six years of having so many years now with this to learn and adapt from it and see what's working best for your practice. So Andrew, would you like to chime in on how you've been using digital tools? Of course. So, so much like Scott and Amy, uh, we do utilize uh, phenotypes for um, pedigree trolling, um, which has, has worked out well for us. Um, uh, in addition, uh, administratively, we've really looked at trying to use some tools to uh, make the process more efficient as far as getting patients in um, and triaged appropriately. So on the scheduling side, we've been working with some automated forms uh, of scheduling that is sort of, sort of like a choose your own adventure of, okay, this is the question question I have for the genetic counselor, perhaps it's a family history of cancer versus um, some neurogenetic question and scheduling appropriately in, in that area. So um, that's one area we've been using. And then as far as uh, intake and pre-screens, we've looked to develop a number of different forms that we're able to use again to make sure that the, the time with the genetic counselor is used most efficiently so that we can, can scale that um, and have uh, more patients seen in a shorter amount of time given the uh, obvious shortage of genetic professionals professionals out there. Um, so, so those are uh, two additional ways we've utilized uh, beyond uh, family history drawing. So we see just like how many areas of it's not just pedigree builders. I think that's one that genetic counselors think of first when we think of digital tools, but really looking at it from uh, electronic health record standpoint of it being bigger than that. Um, we've touched a little bit, but I'd like to dive into more of the benefits that you've seen of using these digital tools. And, you know, we've talked about all, like for us as clinicians, but also tapping into what patients are getting out of this too. Um, Amy, did you want to start us out on talking about these benefits of digital tools in our practices? Mm, sure. Um, I mean, so access anywhere is helpful for us, but it's also brilliant for MDT working. So um, when, we, when we're getting together as a, as a, as a team and we, we're doing uh, most of our uh, multidisciplinary multi meetings on Zoom these days, um, and it means that we can all see the same thing. So either when we're presenting a case, we can, um, somebody can share their screen and show a pedigree. Um, actually, the, the other thing that we do is we're all on our, on our laptops looking things up at the same time and um, actually, in some ways it's more effective than when we all used to sit in a room together uh, where there'd be one person operating the computer now you can have 10 different people looking at different things um, and all contributing actively to that meeting um, so the, the kind of tools we'll be using in that you know we're looking at variants on websites but we're also um, maybe looking at the patient's record looking at um, information that we've gathered on other family members at the same time so that I, that's been um, kind of progress in a way actually from 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 when we were when we were meeting in person um, and the other thing is even away from an mdt scenario sometimes you might ask somebody for a second opinion um, in the days when we had paper notes you'd have to take that set of paper notes to them because otherwise they wouldn't be able to review the information now i can literally just send a message to somebody who can look up all the same information from wherever they happen to be um, and we can either have a call about it or they can just send me a message back so i think it's made those sort of um, discussions about patients, which can be so crucial in making decisions, getting the right expert input. Um, it's made that much more fluid, I think. Yeah, certainly. Scott, do you have something to add into this, the benefits of using these digital tools for you and patients? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think from the patient perspective, one of the things that we always um, have a challenge when the patient shows up for the appointment generally is you start taking the family history and they start asking questions, you start asking questions like, well, I don't know if my mom had this or that, and can I call her, can I text her real quickly? So I think with some of the digital tools, patients can really log in, see what they need, pause it, log out, call their family members, and you're really getting a richer data set of what is going on in your patient's family history because they've had the time to ask family members up front. So again, you're getting, getting better information to provide risk assessment and do genetic counseling and, and make genetic testing recommend, recommendations in, in those situations. You know, for the clinicians, I really tend to agree with what Amy said. I think having the digital tools really allows uh, multiple people to be accessing the same thing at the same time. So if you are doing some sort of um, 
tumor board, case conference, whatever it may be, everybody can access it, can share it. Um, and then again, I think for really when you're working with multiple families to be able to connect family members in your internal tool. So if you do have a team of genetic counselors and not the same genetic counselor isn't working with each individual in the family, you have a, a way for um, your colleagues to see who else in the family has been seen, what their information is, what their test results are, so that again, those individuals really have the most up-to-date information about, about those families. Yeah, it really speeds it up to be able to like link pedigrees together to say, oh, we met with their brother, so let's bring in that family history and then just update it for that patient because maybe it's been a couple of years or something at that point of just you think about how much time that saves. And I think we've all been there of taking a family history and they're like, oh, can I call my mom or grandmother or whoever because they're the experts for the family history. Um, and so kind of saving that time uh, is certainly very advantageous and to already have that information going into that. Uh, Andrew, do you have anything to add about the advantages to digital tools? Yes, I would certainly say, you know, organizational is, is one, um, just being able to have all the pedigrees in one place. Um, I know that's one thing, certainly initially uh, when I started um, career becoming a GC of organizing things, it is a challenge. So having uh, these digital tools really keeps everything in one place, which I think is helpful. And then sort of on the, the lab side of things, you know, having this data in a digital format makes, um, quantifying it in a way that a lab can utilize uh, easier, you know, as far as, you know, portals that can submit uh, data like uh, facial data, as well as, you know, pedigrees, things of that nature, just makes that process a lot smoother um, and then can help the lab better analyze the data that they're identifying um, through genetic testing and, and, you know, lead to potentially better, better outcomes, diagnosis, things like that. So I think there's, there's that benefit there as, as well and certainly hope to see that improve over in the future. Yeah, so not only are we saving time, making things more efficient, the quality of care ends up improving because we have all this information and because things are streamlined. One question that I was curious about is how patients respond to a digital pedigree as opposed to the old school pen and paper. Um, because when we're using pen and paper, usually, you know, it feels like we're very involved. We're doing this together. They can see what you're doing as you're doing it. Um, you know, for some of the cases, like Scott, you were mentioning that sometimes patients are filling this in ahead of time. So you're more looking at the pedigree that they've kind of created themselves. But for patients that you're taking the pedigree while they're there, either in person or telehealth, um, what that experience looks like. And Andrew, we could start with you this round if you'd like. Sure, sure, yeah. So uh, interestingly, um, for my thesis in graduate school, I, I looked, looked at something uh, like this. So we looked at taking a paper pedigree with patients and then doing a uh, digital pedigree with patients. And we found, uh, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it was quite significant. I think about 80% of individuals who had a digital, digital pedigree taken and this was in 2014 or so, um, were interested in having a copy, um, citing reasons such as, you know, sharing it with their physician, sharing it with their, um, their family to gather more information. Whereas with the paper pedigree, I believe it was closer to, to, to 10%. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of factors involved there, but I think it was just, you know, interesting to, to see that there's, there's certainly an interesting or an increased interest there, um, perhaps based on, you know, how, how the pedigree looks um, in that form or an interest at that time uh, that was earlier uh, when maybe some of these tools weren't as uh, pervasive. So it's just, you know, a novelty. But in any case, I think um, it, it is something I'm interested in exploring further as, as I think, you know, it can, can help with more communication um, to improve patient care. Yeah, definitely. And when it's digital, the handwriting is not an obstacle. So I'm yes. sure that's a big part of it of, you know, you look over and you're going through pedigree, you're trying to go through quick, they're talking about stories, you're adding this and that. Um, and then you come back and look at it, you're like, well, it's legible, but it's not necessarily the most yeah, beautiful yes. piece of artwork that I've made. Um, so I don't know if you've had anything more to add to that, Amy, of experiences of having patients have digital pedigrees drawn instead of the physical ones. I mean, I haven't drawn a paper pedigree in quite a long time. Um, and actually, we do a lot of our, um, our, our family history gathering prior to clinic as well. But I have always found when I show somebody their digital pedigree, particularly if we've drawn, if they, you know, they, 
the way that we do it at the moment, and we hope that, that we'll get to a stage where patients can fill in um, the information digitally, but at the moment they fill in a paper family history form, um, which then becomes a, a digital pedigree. And they usually love seeing that. They, it's kind of exciting for them to see their family in this format. And um, I also find when I've either I take the pedigree in clinic or um, this is um, when, when I was using it face to face more so than now, um, either I take it in clinic or I'm, I'm adding to it. So even if they've sent in some stuff beforehand that we'll be, we'll be building it in clinic. It really feels like, I think, it, I, I know the paper feels some more personal, but actually I think digital almost feels more like a shared space. Uh, they, you, I, can, I, I would put my laptop between the two of us. Um, sometimes I would get patients to type if they had, if their relatives had difficult to spell names. Um, and then it just does feel like a sort of a shared activity and they're really kind of contributing to, to, um, to their consultation. That can be a really great way to do it so that it's it's facing both of you um, if you are in person. And if you're not, then you can have the ability to share your screen. And, you know, mm -hmm. as you were saying before, Amy, like sometimes that's even better when everybody has their own computers uh, to access that information. So kind of taking away that barrier of the physical laptop between you um, and saying, all right, let's work on this together. It's kind of a project for the next you know few minutes to say, let's figure out and build this family tree together. Uh, Scott, do you have anything to chime in about, um, you know, the patient experience? Yeah, I mean, I think there are just two things. Um, you know, one is just, I think the idea that everything is digital, right? There's so much on your phone and apps and everything else that when you break out a piece of paper and a stencil, sometimes you get like a cockeyed look like, wait, what are you doing? Like every other, buddy, every other medical professional I work with is on a computer. Like, what is this? Um, so I think there is that kind of, um, idea that you know what we're doing is kind of a forward uh, part of healthcare, like we are in the digital age. Um, and maybe not so much for the patients, but maybe more for providers is that, you know, if you have that hand-drawn pedigree, right, you have to send that to get it scanned into your EHR. And so then the patient updates you. And how do you go about updating that pedigree? Are you redrawing it? Do you send a note? you then have multiple copies of pedigrees in your EHR because good luck getting something out of the EHR once it's in it. Um, so the idea that, you know, you don't have something digitally that you can kind of easily um, update and then again, kind of have that uh, most updated version constantly available is just, it, it I think kind of goes against a lot of the stuff that we, we do as, as providers. Yeah, that's a really good point of just like being able to update it. And yeah, you really can't get rid of something once it's in that EMR. Um, and so kind of another aspect of this that I think Andrew may have touched on at one point um, is the diagnostic process. So we've been talking a lot about pedi pedigree builders, um, but digital tools can also be useful in that diagnostic journey. So how do we see that they are useful? How are they being used during this diagnostic process? And we can start with you, Amy. Well, I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer this one because I'm not. I had to think about this question, and I, I'm not sure. So I, I for instance, I, I don't use the. Um, Phenotips has a lot more functionality than I personally use, particularly for um, diagnostic um, coding of, of um, dysmorphology cases. For instance, you can put in a lot of thing, um, diagnostic codes, and it will suggest diagnoses, but they're not the kinds of cases that I tend to see. So um, I don't tend to use that. The thing I was thinking though was about. Um, diagnostic coding and how helpful that can be so if you um if we code well in our in our electron in our digital tools whether that's um in phenotypes where you can add a gene um so if you if you add a gene you can add a variant as well and then let's say you get a you, you this happens all the time you get an update oh well now these people need to have this screening and then you can just search your entire database and find all the people where you've recorded that they have a pathogenic variant in that gene. Um, similarly, in within our electronic medical records, we can do that, although um, it's pretty unwieldy and quite difficult to write and also fundamentally relies on people coding it well in the first place, which um, tends to be where these things fall down. Yeah. So being able to actually find and just search for, you're saying like a certain gene or maybe even a certain variant and then yeah. having those patients pop up. Yeah, but actually, in a simpler way as well, searchable medical records are such a boon. Like if you're, you're so you're, you're, you've got a question about a patient, the, the record can be so busy, and there can be so many, so lots of people have written things in it. You can search it. Like if you've got a question, like, did has this person had this, and that's that's part of your your diagnostic process. You can just search their entire chart for it, um, and it'll search through everybody's notes, everybody's letters. 
So it's it's it does it's definitely got more capability than, for instance, getting in previously you'd get a big pile of hospital notes and have to work through them. Right. It's like good luck. That's going to be your whole afternoon there. Yeah. Yeah. At least definitely. Um, Andrew, you've had more experience with pediatrics and having this be more of the process. What has been your experience using this for in the diagnostic process? So I think I think it comes down to you know again having having those pedigrees in front of you in an easy to access manner. Um, cascade testing is one thing that comes to mind. You know, you diagnose something in one individuals and you have to test uh, the parents, other relatives. So it, that can that can be a value. Um, I think another thing, and I, I believe it's still sort of in development, but tools such as facial recognition um, that are being integrated into exome analysis. Um, I don't know if that's happening with pedigrees yet, but I certainly see a possibility of doing that. And so it, it may just, you know, add to the ability to uh, through a bioinformatic pipeline um, for analysis for different findings. Um, but yeah, I, I'm trying to think of anything else, but that's that's what I have for now. <laughs> yeah, and something certainly that we're looking at as uh, more additions are made to these tools. So that's almost something more, I suppose, as a, a preview and something that's more up and coming. Um, Scott, anything to add on to the diagnostic process? Yeah, I would just really kind of echo what Amy said. I don't use it in that way, but one of the reasons that we actually um, started using phenotypes and, and, and wanted phenotypes to be our main tool is this idea that they're really kind of built for exomes and genomes in the sense that you can't add in uh, features related to HBO ontology for your patients, and then it will pull up a differential diagnosis of possible conditions to be thinking about um, and you can actually upload, um, I believe, VCF files into the, into the system as well and store them there. So if we get to that point where really everybody's having an exome or a genome and we're kind of, we get away from panels, it just seemed like it had a, a lot of power to be able to store data files, um, uh, enough uh, uh, geno uh, phenotype information to really make it more of a diagnostic tool to help us in, in the future. Yeah, uh, and you, but again, for, we're not there, we're not using it that way yet. Mm -hmm. And certainly, yeah, as, more, as we move away from the panels, as you were talking about, and just going straight for exome genome, that we're gonna have so much more data with that, which makes it so much more important to have these systems set up so that there is ways to handle all of this data. Um, and one part that you kind of mentioned too was importing and exporting like information. Um, so what's been your experience with like the ability for these digital tools to import and export like patient records specifically? If you have a, a new patient intake um, and it's a referral for somebody else, um, the experience of being able to input some of that data um, into the conversation. I don't know, Scott, if you want to start out on that conversation. Yeah, so ask, ask the question one more time. So more kind of like importing and exporting information in and out of the, the systems? Yeah, so if you have a new patient coming into the office um, and you know to the practice of taking whatever their medical record information is, whatever format you get that in, the ability to input that into your system. Gotcha, yeah, so, um, sorry, we're gonna have a, a visitor. Um, <laughs> so we, um, we have, not really used it in, in that way at, at this point in, in time. But usually the records that we're getting, we are storing those kind of in the, the traditional medical records. So st we're still in a process where we're really actually kind of taking the information and re-inputting it in. Um, I mean, I can certainly envision a time that, you know, like right now, if I somebody pays me with a check, I take a picture with the phone and it scans all the information in. I bet we can get to a point where these tools, if you take a picture of the medical record, it will then scan it and input the data. Um, so we're not actually abstracting it versus the system can just do it. So not there mm -hmm. yet, but I feel like we could probably get to that point with, with this type of technology that's, that's available. Yeah, certainly. And, and then on the other side of it with exporting data, if you're sending a patient to somebody else, has that been a different experience of then being able to take that data and share it with them if they're in a different um, system that they're not one of your coworkers? No, it, it hasn't. Well, so it's still more of a, they probably are going to get it by paper and they're going to have mm -hmm. to bring it and, and um, uh, that individual will have to scan it. So right now, I'm not aware that any of the digital tools really kind of work like the Epic Care Everywhere, where you can get if the different if the different centers agree to it, you can see the different information. 
Um, I mean, it'd be great to get to that point because if there is like one or two main products that are on the market and genetic counselors around the country are all using them, be, you know, again, it's a big time saver where if you know that that family member was seen at, you know, Ohio State, and you can go and pull that information up, it's going to ultimately save you uh, time with your patients. Yeah, something to definitely like look forward to. And as you know, we all are deciding like which platforms we're using, if genetic counselors end up using more of the same or similar platforms and that being uh, more of something where you could like almost like a Google doc of like, oh, share this patient with this person if they're like within your network or something like that. Um, yeah. Anything else to add on to this conversation, Amy? Um, I mean, we, we use Epic, so we do have some access to hospital records via care, care everywhere, anywhere, care everywhere. Um, but it's only quite limited because there aren't that many other hospitals in the UK currently who are um, who whose systems are compatible with ours. So that is that is gradually growing. Um, the, the other thing that I was thinking about in terms of um, import and export is in Fintips you can you can export um, a PED file, which you can, which can then be transferred to. I think it pretty much it's, it's a fairly universal. Um, uh, file format so you can then send that to um, anyone who uses another pedigree drawing tool what we mostly use that for is um, exporting pedigree data into our cancer risk assessment program CanRisk. I think it is is built into a newer version of phenotypes that we don't have yet so there is going to be some even simpler than it is now but actually it's pretty simple already you just um, it's export the export the file import it into CanRisk, and then it's done um the alternative is and the, what we pr were previously doing was almost redrawing the pedigree within the risk assessment tool which um pretty tiresome um so that that's that's a nice um a nice quick and easy way to um to to add to what we're doing for our patients yeah certainly and anything else andrew to add on to this part um, just quickly, one other thing we use is, uh, again, with some of the intake and pre-screen, um, we do that in a digital format um, that we can then export to, you know, discrete values like Excel, so we can have date of birth usually searched and things of that nature. So um, that's that's helpful in our, our end, but nothing too much more advanced than that. Yeah, certainly. I think something to really keep our eye on for how tools are developing, I think, especially with the pandemic of these tools being more important than ever that we're going to, you know, be seeing things that, you know, a month from now, maybe some of this conversation will even be outdated with how quickly things are moving. Um, so kind of going back to just genetic counseling and the different areas that you all work in, when thinking about digital tools, there's, you know, obviously our three main areas of genetic counseling of pediatric, prenatal and cancer, but, you know, that's kind of also becoming outdated that there are so many areas of genetic counseling that's becoming much more um, frequent in our field. Um, what top areas of genetic counseling do you see digital tools having the largest impact of seeing how we're using digital tools and either really improving efficiency, patient experience, that diagnostic process of, of having that really large impact of looking at that subfield? Uh, and Amy, we can start with you to hear your thoughts. Um, so I think we're perhaps a little bit behind from where Scott was. Um, we're still aiming and hoping to get to the point where um, patients fill in their family history for in, digitally. That's going to be you know, such a big step forward for us in terms of time saving. We sh really shouldn't be um, entering stuff from paper onto onto an electronic system. It should just be going in automatically. We're we're far, fairly far down the line with that. We know it's possible. It's just a case of um, mostly getting our hospital IT on side. So that I think is going to be such a big time saving. And um, as Scott was saying, it just frees you up to actually use your genetic counselling skills. Um, rather than to, to be doing um, data input. Um, and I wonder as well if, if, um, if digital tools can help with um, some of the, some of the um, educational and sort of visual aids aspects of working with patients. And as, as genetics is becoming more complex and um, some of the concepts that we need to convey can be quite difficult. Um, so I think sort of user-friendly tools that display somebody's um, result in a way that it helps you to um, interpret and make it meaningful them, for them, um, I think could, could potentially be a good area to develop. Yes, certainly. And Scott, do you have an area to focus on? Yeah, I mean, we, we worked with uh, Phenotips to develop and, and beta test some of the, the risk models. So uh, Phenotips added the Gale model as well as uh, IBIS into uh, their system. So just having those two where you have the family history already drawn off, you 
if you, you know, especially as a child, it pulls in a lot of that information. You still need to input a few things that just are our fields uh, for typically when you're drawing the family history. But with a click of a button, you have two risk models already basically run. Um, and they're currently in the process of validating uh, the PREM model for, for Lynch syndrome. Uh, so for us, it probably took out about 15 minutes of post-session work uh, for running is that every single breast unaffected woman that um, comes in for a breast cancer or risk assessment, we run the models on. And so if you kind of add that 15 minutes up, of course, you know, thousands of patients, it's a lot of time saved. So um, for, for what I do, uh, this is a digital tool that really has made a big difference. Yeah, certainly of not just re-entering the same data over and over in different places of like, you know, and, and less likely too that making a mistake of missing a number or something along those lines that you're able to say, okay, here's where the data is. This is the information we're getting out of it all in that one place. Uh, Andrew, anything else to add onto this part? Um, I think uh, Scott and Amy hit, hit all the big parts there. So uh, nothing, nothing uh, groundbreaking to add there. <laughs> we can kind of talk about then of what genetic counselors should look at in terms of when they're choosing digital tools. There's a couple on the market to look at. Um, what are aspects that are on your list that you suggest genetic counselors looking into when, you know, as they kind of shop around um, for these in terms of obviously being HIPAA compliant would be one of them, uh, but what other aspects that go into that? Andrew, did you want to start us off? Sure, sure. So I think, you know, uh, obviously making sure that there's integration possible or, you know, that the, the IT group at the hospital, clinic, or uh, otherwise um, allows, you know, that type of integration. So having integration can really you know, streamline things. So that's that's one thing, uh, of course. Um, and then also, it's it's uh, ideal if there's uh, ability to integrate risk models and things of that nature. So I think that that'll certainly be as more risk models are developed, um, having that. Um, beyond that, just making sure it's intuitive uh, to be able to do with with the the workflow that you have. If you uh, obtain family history ahead of time, um, that that works in that model, or if you more so prefer, or the the clinic model looks at uh, or has family history being obtained during an appointment, to make sure, however, that information is input. That again, it works for best how the the, the GCs there operate. Um, so I think those are you know a couple. Of big pieces um, and really just to make sure that there's support available from from whatever the um, company who is building this um, it, they're they're there and you know that that's going to be long term there's certainly some some uh, different models uh, or, or programs have you know shut down over time so that that creates another challenge so just making sure that someone or a group is reliable I think is also ideal there Yes, I feel like we should like take that snapshot of all those things and make a list out of it because I think that's so many important factors to be taking into account when thinking about which tools of you know trying out and, and possibly adopting. Um, Amy, do you have any others to add on to this list? I think that was most of them. I don't. I can't <laughs> yes. think of anything. <laughs> and you're like covered everything right there. Sorry. Any, no, <laughs> that's great, Scott. Anything else for that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would just echo the support. Um, I think one of the things that again, with phenotype specifically, is when we first started beta testing it, we ran into some, some issues and we gave the feedback and they were extremely open to making those changes so that it worked better. Um, I've worked with other tools where it's like, nope, this is our product and it's like moving mountains for them to make any changes to make it user uh, more user-friendly for not only the clinician, but also the patient. Uh, so I really just wanted to echo that, that support piece um, in terms of the digital tools. Yeah, especially if they're able to say, oh, this is an aspect that isn't working for you. How could it be better? And kind of being partners in that so that you don't feel like, oh, it just is what it is. I don't like this. I don't know how to change it um, so that it really is dynamic. Um, so now that we may have sold some genetic counselors that digital tools is the way to go. Um, the other really half of the conversation I would say is talking about the barriers of actually adopting these. We've talked about how many just benefits can come out of these digital tools and with the time, patient care and everything that goes along with that. Um, but it can be tough, Amy, you were saying at the beginning that it was tough to actually implement this and switch over from paper to digital yeah. tools. Um, what advice do you all have about, you know, approaching either department heads or whoever is making that call um, of switching over to digital tools? and 
you know, how genetic counselors can frame this conversation so that they can really, you know, take what they've learned here today and approach, you know, um, their supervisors with this information. Um, Amy, did you want to start us off? I mean, I think see it as a business case and and um, and and sell the, the advantages and the advantage are, are mostly in time saving um, in, in time saving, either trying to find the pedigree, the notes, whatever, which might be, may may not be where they're supposed to be um, time saving in um, if you can. And I would definitely advise if you're setting this up now to look for something where. Um, patients can enter their own information prior to clinic. That's there were huge time-saving gains um, to be found there. Um, so, sort of approach it as a as a as a as a as a, as a, as a business case. Sell the benefits of it. Um, the other thing, of course, is that a lot of people are afraid of change, um, and that that wasn't it was part of why it, the, the transition was so difficult. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't the only reason. And I think um, that that. Fear of change does have to be overcome, and, and I think sometimes it's a case of um, introducing ideas quite slowly. So um, intro introducing introducing the concept, but then sort of gradually coming back to it because people sometimes need a, an, need time to adapt to a big shift like that. Um, and we'll need to kind of filter through their questions. Of, well, how's that going to work? And how's that going to work when they when they when they know the the sort of ecosystem that they live in and work in, and that's comfortable. Um, they 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 need time to figure out how how a new version of that would work. So I think I, I suppose the message is just don't be disheartened if you initially get a but but this but that response. That's somebody thinking through it. Give them time to do it and just keep you know gently gently coming back to it. Yeah, and anticipate what those questions are going to be, so you can kind of think out and map. Okay, this is where we could go from there if they bring up this question, and uh, kind of do your homework before approaching them. I think that's really good advice, um, Scott. Anything to add about advice of you know approaching department heads about adding these digital tools and potential barriers that can happen at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, Amy really kind of hit on a, a really the key ones. I think the two other ones that I would maybe add to that is one, I think you can make an argument, like how much has the hospital already spent on their EHR and they have, you know, they make adoptions to all different types of departments. Well, this is a department specific tool that's needed. And for us to get off of paper and be completely digital, we need this type of tool. And then I think the second argument that you could potentially make as a genetic counselor, if you really are still doing uh, pen to paper is it's just more HIPAA compliant. Like if you are seeing your patients and then you're going home and doing some charting in the evening, you're then taking paper out of the hospital with you home to then, you know, write your notes um, so that you have all the information in front of you. Um, and so to be able to not have to take paper home, be able to just log in and have access to everything, it just is kind of, again, just more HIPAA compliant, just, just safer in that regard. Yeah, certainly. I think HIPAA compliant just being really a big factor in all of that. And thinking ways that you can reduce your risk of, of coming up with any issues with that. Um, Andrew, anything else to add on to this part? Um, so really, you know, just anytime you're trying to affect large change at an institution, just making sure you have someone, a decision maker who's, you know, a champion that believes in what the change you want to affect, um, and really just making sure that all of the folks who this would impact um, are, are on board, um, you know, and uh, getting getting representatives from each to, to to make a reasoned argument again, looking at the value that this can add, um, and just making a business proposal essentially, I think is you know the good a good way to go about it. Yes, definitely. Well said. I think before we move on to uh, the listener questions here, I had one more question myself that I wanted to get your take on is just where we see digital tools going in the next five to 10 years. But I almost want to switch that and say like one to five years, because I feel like 10 years, that's, that's too hard to tell. Um, so for the next few years, what do you see changing and being the biggest impact of digital tools, like specifically for us as genetic counselors? Uh, Scott, did you uh, have something in mind for this? Yeah, I mean... You know, I, I think we are going to get to a point where, you know, most of the process probably is going to be digital. Something that I described earlier where the patient's really engaging with some sort of digital tool, whether it's videos, whether it's a chat bot, whether it's something that's really allowing the patient to get a lot of that pre-education so that when they get to the healthcare provider, again, it's really more of a targeted session. Um, or I do think it's possible that with some of these tools, if we're able to integrate potentially some psychosocial tools. So again, maybe in the cancer uh, setting, like looking at cancer anxiety, cancer depression, cancer worry, 
and, and maybe that to allow us to see more patients and work at our top of scope, maybe there are some patients that can go through an entire digital process and not talk to a genetic counselor on the front end. A test gets ordered and then we're available on the back end to answer questions about the test results. But for patients that are going through this process and they kind of flag that there's anxiety or worry or concern, then they get kind of off-ramped from the fully digital process to the genetic counselor um, for that more one-on-one um, meeting. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of people that are ordering their own genetic testing at different companies. So there are some people that may not need us up front that really we can work with on the back end. And I think the digital tools are really going to allow for that process to work. Yeah, that's an interesting concept to think about of, you know, we sometimes get focused so much on the genetic information and the decision-making part, but also knowing that with so much of this, there is that psychosocial component that sometimes is one that we talk about with these digital tools because, you know, as genetic counselors, a lot of our training is focused on that psychosocial component and computers don't have as much training on that. So certainly it's something that we can focus on and see how that uh, is changing in the future and being able to funnel patients more efficiently. Uh, Amy, do you have anything that comes to mind of looking at uh, the future of digital tools? I've got kind of two things which are, which are sort of at either ends and a bit of a, a sort of dem- democratization of genetic information. So one being tools that help non-genetics providers. So like like the risk assessment tools, which will basically tell them I, either this patient needs the screening or you should refer this patient to a genetic counsellor. So to sort of empower them a bit to be making some of those decisions. I think some of those do already exist. Um, and the other one is at the patient end of the spectrum. And I've seen quite a few studies where... Um, people have trialed and I don't think I'm not sure there's any actually out there and active and live and public at the moment but um, apps and websites that patients can use to share genetic information with their families so you know at the point where we where we find a pathogenic variant in a patient and it's sort of then they're then charged with informing their relatives about it it's a digital way of doing that because of course you know as Scott was saying everything's digital everyone expects it to be digital they don't expect like they don't like when you get a paper and stencil out to do a pedigree they get a letter to give to their family who they probably only communicate with on whatsapp and facebook messenger it's like what am i going to do with a letter take a picture <laughs> of the letter and then send it right so. they mostly do that right right <laughs> but the, but an app could be you know because it could be they could then it could then contain some information about it they can click through it could tell them like they could put in their their postal code and it would tell them where they need to get referred to it could be much more interactive so i think yeah. i think that's a sort of a future future area Yeah, and definitely areas where it could be um, more anonymous too, of being able to have, oh, this is your family member's information that we can share and not say that this is coming from you. And that's going to be much easier with digital tools as opposed to sending some kind of uh, something in the mail. And they're like, well, where is this coming from? And, um, you know, less easier to track and talk to the genetic counselor it's coming from. Uh, Mm. So that's certainly an area to be looking at. And yeah, as you said, people are not expecting when you hand them a piece of paper, they're like, what am I supposed to do with this? This is not going in my computer. Uh, Andrew, anything that comes to mind when thinking about the future? Yeah, yeah. So Scott and Amy both hit on wonderful points that I very much agree with. Uh, I think the one other thing I would want to point out, and I've sort of talked about this a little bit, is a lot of these digital tools do produce data in in different ways that hasn't been completely integrated into, you know, bioinformatic pipelines for exome, genome, other other methodologies that are, you know, coming down the pipeline. Um, So, you know, having this information be integrated into that process, I think is really going to give us just another piece to the puzzle to help further um, diagnose folks and as polygenic risk scores get to get better and, and improve. Um, I, I think we're going to see a lot of um, benefit from including these, uh, this, the data from these digital tools um, as far as diagnosis and just giving, uh, providing information to, to families um, and, and patients to, to make decisions off of. Yes, certainly well said all around. Um, We do have some viewer listener questions here uh, that we can get to. And so the first question is, does phenotypes support complex pedigrees? For example, with multiple partners and consanguinity. Um, I can answer that really quick that yes, the answer is yes. Multiple partners in there, consanguinity is a box you can check off. Um, So I think we can uh, kind of check that one off the list uh, that we've answered that. So the answer is yes. Consanguinity is better than that, actually. So you can just mark a single relationship as consanguinous, but you can also drag. So you can get the partner node from a person on their pedigree and drag it to somebody else to attach them. So you can can make a consanguinous relationship by literally joining two people who are on your pedigree. 
Yeah, I didn't it. know that. I'll have to see that. I saw the yeah. box for it that I've used. It's um, neat. Yeah. Oh yeah. So actually, I, I mean, those are those are things that, as Scott was saying, they've they've they developed fintechs have been brilliant at and responsive at at, um, at changing things, and that's one thing that they that they improved was that was how it handles consanguinity. So yeah, it does it it does it does it really well. Yeah, certainly. And so our next question is, is there a software that has phenotyping applications and facilitates genetic evaluations, like a dysmorphology software? Does Phenotips have something like this? I don't know if anyone can speak to this question. I can't speak specific to uh, Phenotips, but I do know there is uh, software out there. Um, I don't know if I can name, name the software, but uh, there, the, if you uh, look it up, there is uh, software out there that will take basically um, data points from your whole face, um, and I, I believe they're working on other other um, metrics as well, to then suggest a potential diagnosis off of that. Obviously, it's just one piece of the puzzle, but um, it's uh, there, there's a lot of good uh, software out there that can, can um, and, and that also can integrate into uh, analysis for, for certain labs are, are using that, that type of information as well. Um, so hopefully that helps. Certainly. Anything else to add, Amy Scott? I, mean, I think if you really enter into phenotypes, the very specific dysmorphological, um, that's the right term, uh, feature in multiple of those features, it will do um, uh, some, like I said, some di differential diagnosis. And then I also think that it will, it, it, maybe speaking on a turn here, but I think it also, if you put that information in and have a BCF file, I think there's some connection between that too. Um, so it, it has that functionality. I just, again, not doing a lot of pediatrics. I don't really use it at this point. Yeah, and it does, phenotypes can do deep phenotyping based on text recognition there. Um, and I believe our next uh, webinar is gonna be focusing on this. So a bit of a teaser there. Um, our next question is, what is the process of drawing a detailed pedigree on an online medium while speaking to the patient? Doesn't it get difficult to keep track on the conversation and simultaneously draw the pedigree? So we talked about this a little bit earlier in the webinar, um, but any additional thoughts there on just that experience, especially if it's a more detailed pedigree and it's not necessarily writing live and well on most people? I think it's so, just practice. <laughs> just um, like anything, right? <laughs> yeah. I So... I, I know that I, I know because I have colleagues who are newer to using it who don't feel so comfortable, but I, I find it, I don't feel a barrier in my brain between what I'm doing on phenotypes and the conversation that I'm having with the patient. And I think that is just, that's just familiarity with it. Um, I mean, you can do it. There are some tricks which help like using the tab key to move between the boxes rather than using going, going back to your mouse all the time, using definitely use the number keypad for dates of birth rather than um, use rather than scrolling for things and for ages it make that makes it so much quicker but I don't I mean it, I think if you're doing um so if you're doing telephone consultation it's quite easy because you just have to, you only need the pedigree in front of you for video consultations it does help to have two screens um, or, or split your screen so that you can you so you can see your patient and also work on the pedigree at the same time um, but I think if if you if the thought of that daunts you, I think it's just because you've not not tried doing it. And I think when when you when you start doing it, it 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 and and it, you feel comfortable with it and confident. It's I don't find it a problem at all. Yeah, definitely. Scott, did you have something to add on to that as well? It's just surprisingly easy. I think once because once you do it, it's it's not that different. And Amy mentioned it earlier. It's a way to engage with your patients. Or if you are share if it's a video appointment and you share your screen they can see what you're building at the same time. And often they'll kind of comment like, oh, this is pretty cool. And you know, what does this symbol mean? And so it, it does allow for more engagement with, with the patients versus again, if you're kind of writing with your head down, looking up, it's really just facing you at that point in time. Yeah, I think that's a good point in that um, with this, it's like, okay, if you're drawing the line then the box or the circle, that is probably gonna take more time compared to just clicking one button of like, oh, adding a brother, adding a sister. Um, so I think, yeah, once you get through a couple pedigrees, you're like, oh, wow, why have I been doing drawing for years? Andrew, anything else to add on to that one? Um, just to say, you know, every time you're trying something new, it's okay to, you know, check in with the patient and say, you know, uh, you can say, I uh, just learning this new software. Obviously, you know, I've been doing genetic counseling for X amount of years. So it doesn't take away from your, uh, you know, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Like, you know what you're doing. So, it, you know, addressing that, you know, this is a new software, it might take a few seconds, I think is totally fine. And I, I did that when I started, cause I take a little while to figure things out and no one ever, um, you know, 
balked, balked at that at all. So I think that's fine as well. <laughs> yeah. And even just taking some time, it's like, take your favorite book series or something and just play around with it of adding and see how quickly you can do it of knowing that information and just playing around with it. Um, you know, and the vast amount of downtime we all have. <laughs> um, so another question we have is, does the pedigree system at Phenotips, um, is it inc inclusive to LGBTQ of the queer community? So that this was a change that we requested as well, because in an early version of Phenotips, it wouldn't let you have, like, like the def by default, if you set up a partnership, one would be male and one would be female. So that is no longer the case. The partnership, a partnership can be male, both male, can be both female. Um, there's a, the, a diamond symbol is for, um, is for which, which you can use either if you don't know a gender or if somebody is non-binary. Um, what we don't currently have, and I, and I, and, um, I'm not sure that there are agreed symbols at the moment. I know that one of our trainee genetic counselors is doing a master's um, project on this at the moment, but so, so symbols for trans men and trans women, I'm not sure that there are agreed symbols for them at the moment. So I think it's, you know, I, I'm sure that if, when agreed, when and if there are agreed symbols, I'm sure Phoenix would be happy to incorporate them, but that is something, so at the moment, um, you just have to put, put one gender and then, and then put in your comments in your notes if somebody is trans. And to follow up on that, if someone's using an egg or sperm donor, is that also easy to add in or is it more making a note um, on the pedigree? I think it's making a note on the pedigree. I don't think that you can, you can definitely put an adopted status, but I don't mm -hmm. think there's a gamete donor option. I, can, I'm, I could be wrong. I haven't looked for it specifically. Yeah, that's no something No people on the, on the call here. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and another question we have um, before we wrap up is, can you talk more about the educational tools for patients that are being developed? What is the format? Are these resources interactive? Um, so I don't know if anyone can speak to the educational tools. I know for myself, I've kind of developed them on my own and that's what I use, um, but I don't know if, about any of you guys. I mean, uh, you know, at, at Genome Medical, we basically, we took uh, the genetic counselors and we wrote scripts uh, for the content that we would want in our videos. And then uh, we hired an animation company that then took the scripts, animated them, and then obviously we get to review them, see what the images look like, what the animation looks like. Um, and again, kind of built it on our own. I think a, a lot of centers have, have done this and some of it, you can see some of the videos on YouTube. Uh, a lot of the centers maybe put them out there for their patients to look at ahead of time. So there's a lot of different uh, templates out there for those type of educational tools. Yes, definitely. And so I think that about wraps it up for this webinar. Definitely stay tuned for our next webinar on December 9th. So this is going to be, as I teased earlier, phenotyping in the area era of genome medicine. And this is going to be featuring Dr. Olaf Bobenemer, and he is the Associate Chief of Genetics and Genomics at Boston Children's Hospital. You will see a feedback link emailed to you. Please take out a minute to offer your feedback about today's webinar and pick topics you would like to see us cover in the upcoming series. The email is also gonna include a link to Phenotip Speaker Series page where you can sign up to receive alerts on upcoming sessions so that you don't miss any of them, um, but also all the recordings of our previous sessions are on there as well. So you can watch them on demand. If you watched it before, maybe you need to watch back um, to catch something that we said. And Phenotips is also going to be at NSGC, which is virtual this year. So you can stop by their booth for a free student account. Uh, they're also gonna be showcasing their new cancer risk assessment tool and a new tool that auto draws pedigrees using patient entered data, which is what we've talked about today. So if you'd like to follow us on social media, um, you can search DNA Today on social media and podcast players for myself, along with dnapodcast.com. And I don't know if you guys wanna share your social media as well, Andrew, uh, I think you had a couple that you wanted to share there. Oh, sure. So yeah, we're on Twitter at Clover Genetics, uh, under, Clover underscore Genetics. Um, and then we put out a blog post about once a month on different topics uh, related to, to genetics on, on our website, clovergenetics.com. Um, so certainly check us out there. And Amy or Scott, do you have any um, social media to plug? Mine is uh, on the screen. It's at Chicago Genetics is the private practice. Uh, Genome Medical is at Genomed. Um, so yeah. All right. And Amy, yours is also on the screen, it looks like. Well, that's just the hospital. I, I, to be honest, I, I avoid using social media professionally. <laughs> I'm low profile. So um, yeah, that's, that's just the hospital I work for. 
So they have to catch you in webinars then. They have to look out for when you're speaking. So um, so yeah, definitely um, check out uh, phenotips.com for all information. If we didn't get to your question today, um, you can certainly chat us right now and we'll be sure to email you back. Um, one of our lovely panelists can answer your questions. So I know we had a lot today, so we got to as many as we could in the hour. So thank you again for everybody that's tuned in. And thank you so much, Andrew, Scott, and Amy for joining us today and sharing your expertise. I think it was just so helpful to hear how you're using the digital tools, how genetic counselors can adopt them and you know, really why should they adopt them? So I think we dived into so many topics today. So really appreciate you taking the time to educate our audience today. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kira. All right, we'll see you all next time, December 9th. Mark your calendars so that you can tune into phenotyping in the area of genome medicine. So thank you for tuning in, everybody. It's been lovely to chat uh, throughout the world here. So hope you all have a really great week.